Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs and this is season number six. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Ty Beal, a research advisor on the Knowledge Leadership Team at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, GAIN. Ty has extensive experience examining sustainable food systems, diet quality, food affordability and supplies, micronutrient deficiencies, child growth and development, and global health. He obtained a PhD from the University of California, Davis, where he was a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow. In this episode, we discuss the increasing polarization of animal versus plant-based diets, Tyler's recent work on the intersection between human health, animal, and planetary health. We'll talk about pediatric health and the implications of plant versus animal-based foods. We'll talk about the important role of nutrient-dense foods in lower-income countries, how much our diets really contribute to greenhouse gas emissions, and what we can start doing at an individual level as well as a population level to start improving the health of the planet. Lots of great stuff here from uh, Dr. Ty Beal. I think you're gonna really enjoy this episode. But before we start, a quick announcement. Enrollment is open for the summer cohort of the Football Performance Nutrition Online course. Level up your evidence-based knowledge around nutrition and football. Learn from leading experts working in the NFL and NCAA with the 10 modules and over 12 plus hours of evidence-based content. Right now, you can save $50 off the cost of the course with the promo code SUMMIT. Just head over to performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash football, enter the code SUMMIT, and you can join us for the summer group. Earn CEU credits, connect with monthly mentors, and expand the breadth of your performance nutrition knowledge. Again, just head over to performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash football, use the code SUMMIT, and we'll see you there. All right, let's get this rolling. My conversation with Dr. Ty Beal. Ty, I really appreciate you carving out some time today for us. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Tremendous. Well, listen, could you maybe uh, tell us a little bit more about your role with the, uh, the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition and, uh, and maybe as well how you got interested in, in the field of nutrition? Sure. So I am a research advisor at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, or GAIN for short, um, on the knowledge leadership team. So we generate a lot of evidence to help inform our programs that um, really seek to improve access to nutritious and safe foods. And so we do. Re- I do research. I help um, kind of generate some evidence and knowledge to guide programs and also to learn from programs and, and for the broader community around, you know, how should we really improve people's diets and what are the, what are the things that we should be considering? So, um, that's gain. And, and, and I, I started working here directly out of my, uh, graduate program at UC Davis. Yeah. So I, I originally was, uh, my undergraduate was in a different field. It was in kind of media arts. I was in a band in college. I didn't really have much nutrition interest. <laughs> But um, a couple of years after graduating, I started to gain an interest for my own reasons because I had some health issues. And so I started reading on my own and learning and uh, ended up really helping out a lot of my issues and resolving some important health issues. And a couple of family members did so as well. And so I was like, wow, this is pretty powerful. I would really like to learn more. And I ended up going to uh, UC Davis for geography. um, But they had a program that enabled me to focus on global nutrition. So I did kind of a mix of nutrition and geography, uh, some ecology and uh, agriculture courses as well. So it was, it was really interesting, really kind of a a broad mix of uh, disciplines, but that was kind of what I was interested in. And and ultimately the food systems in which I work now are pretty broad. They, they span all sorts of um, sectors. So it's pretty, pretty nice to be able to approach nutrition from that perspective. Yeah, it's interesting to have that sort of eclectic mix and a real breadth of, of knowledge in different areas. And obviously, when we're dealing with complex problems like food and the food systems, that comes in pretty handy. And, you know, in your work in the last few decades and probably longer, obviously, a real polarization here of these arguments of animal versus plant, and it's become a real ideological uh, battleground. And 
and not just amongst the general population, seemingly amongst, you know, scientists as well. So, you know, in your opinion and research, what do you think are some of the reasons or, or even some of the nuances for this increasing polarization, which seems, you know, mostly in a lot of the Western discourse? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I certainly am exposed to a lot of polarization from all sorts, um, researchers, social media, media, etc. And, you know, I think it's really, um, it's really driven around a few different issues. One of the largest ones from for scientists is probably the environmental um, side of things. So, you know, how do we sustainably produce food for a growing global population, you know, mm. approaching 10 billion by 2060, 2070, how can we do this with our limited resources? And so, you know, animal source foods often get a bad rap. Uh, beef is often in the news for, you know, destroying rainforest, um, you know, driving all sorts of problems, greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera. So that's sort of uh, a lot of scientists are, uh, you know, hesitant to, to, to really kind of promote or encourage uh, animal source foods in some contexts because of that concern. And then they're also attacked, I'm sure, as you know, from sort of the nutrition side, there's this, there's this idea that plant-based is always healthy and better and animal source foods are kind of, you know, to, to be discouraged in the West, at least it's not really the way it is. If you look globally, actually the animal source foods are really prized for their, um, they're kind of aspirational. And they also, of course, they meet, they fill you up, they're high in protein. So this sort of this dissonance, I think is really interesting because, you know, in the West, if you look at most of the people who are sort of advocating for reductions or limitations or, you know, drastic limitations, or even exclusion of uh, animal source foods, they're, they're in Western countries, they're in the US, they're in Europe or Australia. Uh, you don't really see that in other countries. I think that's important to recognize because most of the world is actually not in high income countries. About 84% of the world are in people living in low and middle income countries, and they have a very different perspective. So it's, it's certainly possible to have a healthy diet um, with very little animal source foods if you're really careful and intentional about it. Um, but it's not it's not always easy. And I think that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, definitely. And the challenges of, of the busyness and hecticness of life, whatever country you're in, and obviously it compounds things when we're lower or middle income, because we, we have to then, you know, make certain decisions. And if we maybe start this conversation at the policy level, you know, the great food transformation by the Eat Lancet Commission there in 2019, targeting red meat as both an unhealthy food and, of course, you know, environmentally harmful. Now, of course, we have things like factory farming and, and whatnot that we'll touch on a little further on in this discussion. But you know, can you comment a little bit? I mean, you've touched on it here, but in terms of identifying something so in such a binary way as healthy versus unhealthy seems to ignore a lot of the nuances. Could you shed some light? Yeah, I think that's um, well, certainly I agree. Um, and that's, you know, the recent paper we, we wrote on animal source foods is really to combat this idea that animal source foods are not healthy, they're not sustainable, they're not ethical. Uh, you know, beef, I think, is a, is, a, is a key one. On the nutrition side, it's, you know, it's saturated fat, it's, um, you know, risk of cancer, it's, I mean, even diabetes, you know, diabetes has been implicated. I mean, there's a lot of different um, potential issues and, and processed meat is, you know, there's a bit more evidence behind that. Um, the, the, this, this sort of great food transformation or, or trying to uh, transform food systems, I think uh, it's necessary to make important changes across the food system to, to grow our food sustainably, um, uh, especially considering the, the increasing global population. But of course, there is a lot of nuance in that. Um, and I don't think it's helpful to have a message that meat is bad or, or red meat even is bad. Um, and all plants are fine uh, because there's actually a lot of undernutrition, which is sort of uh, deficiencies in nutrients, uh, things like iron and zinc, uh, stunting in children, anemia in women as well. So these issues are, you know, there a lot of these, the causes of these are actually from a very low intake of animal source food or not enough intake. And so I think it's important to just recommend to just realize there are some risks of animal source foods, of course, and there are a lot of benefits. But what I don't really appreciate is when there's sort of a one sided view that really there's no benefit to consuming meat. There's no, no benefit to animal source foods. We really should just be transitioning to, to plant based foods. I don't I think that's a it's not really reflective of the evidence and it can actually it can actually be problematic um, if you think about society and livelihoods and, and cultures and how we kind of uh, 
depend on different sources of food and income. Yeah, I mean, definitely, obviously, a lot to unpack there. And I think some of the ones that you mentioned, I mean, even within the Eat Lancet guidelines of, you know, eggs being a lower recommendation than even sugar, which seems really bizarre when we just think of nutrient density and, of course, energy. And 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 so really, yeah, you know, your recent paper, Animal Source Foods in Healthy, Sustainable and Ethical Diets, so many different avenues to discuss. And you t- touch on three areas that we sort of oversimplify the narrative you know the first being human health which we're, we'll dive into now and of course the planet and then you know, the animals themselves and when we talk about why you know the, the case against meat animal-based sources is often as we're saying here overstated you know nutrient deficiencies is definitely one which you know you touched on there the other one that we see is that that association with particularly processed red meat comes with the overconsumption of the energy dense foods that you get with the rest of your happy meal, which is the, the French fries, the soda and everything else, which, you know, confounds things. So can you talk a little bit about on that health side, you know, that, why might that case against me be, be overstated? Yeah, I think you raise an important point. There's a lot of observational studies that look at correlations between things. And so you can look at, you know, how much red meat do you consume? How much processed meat do you consume? And what are your, what are your health risks? And in these studies, there's, there's no way to absolutely um, detect some sort of causal relationship, but there is an attempt, at least in, in well-designed studies to say, look, let's try to account for a lot of what are called confounding variables. So variables that may uh, be actually deriving the causal relationship. So let's say it's the it's the Happy Meal or the Big Mac. It could be the fries or the soda. It could be that the per, the people who eat that type of food are less active. It could be that they have lower income. All of these factors and and in modeling, um, a lot of studies try to account for some of those and they say, okay, we're going to adjust for that in a in a model yep. that's like a multivariable model. The problem is uh, a couple things. One, we don't really um, we can't measure and we don't measure all of the, what we would say, known potential confounders. So we don't always have data on everything that could be confounding the relationship. And second, there are a number of confounders that we don't actually have. Um, we don't know what they are. We we don't have a clear idea. And so observational evidence is, is, is only um, can only provide so much insight. And when you look at the evidence, you actually see some conflicting findings. We see some some studies showing that there is a pretty clear association between red meat and processed meat and other studies that show less of an association or no association. But in general, processed meat has much stronger associations. And there's actually more, I think, reasoning for why that can be problematic, sodium preservatives like nitrates and nitrites, etc. Unprocessed red meat, um, there are a few different um, pathways, you know, uh, foods high in saturated fat can uh, increased cholesterol. Uh, there is some concern with high uh, high amounts of heme iron, especially if you don't have a lot of uh, plant-rich foods and fiber and things that are actually um, kind, of, kind of protect against any excess in, in heme iron. Yeah. Uh, but but in general, it's it's a you know it's a smaller segment of the population that really has an issue with too much probably. Uh, and so yeah, it's complicated. But ultimately, um, the the evidence is mixed uh, with unprocessed red meat. And I think from my perspective, people are all over the map on this. My perspective, there's sort of a U-shaped curve. There's a, you have too little red meat that's actually not optimal in a lot of ways. Not that you can't be optimally healthy, but uh, for most people, um, yeah. adding adding in, in some unprocessed red meat to a balanced diet really can help um, you know, improve satiety, uh, improve nutrient adequacy, et cetera. And there is not a lot of evidence that moderate amounts are, uh, you know, can really increase your risk substantially of non-communicable diseases. So if I say moderate amounts, what I'm referring to is some, something probably around the range of 10 to 45 grams of red meat, you know, something in that it's a kind of broad range there, but something where it's not, it's not above the WHO recommendations for cancer risk. Um, and, and so what you, what you tend to see is when you get to higher levels of intake, there is an increased risk. And for me, that's sort of, that's my perspective. I, th- I think you, you have a lot of sort of plant-based or vegans, um, advocates showing evidence of replacement studies where, where you model the replacement of red, red meat with a plant protein. Yep. And you often see a benefit to cardiovascular disease or different, um, non-communicable disease risk factors. Um, 
And so there is that, there is that, that piece of evidence. I think that's important to consider, but what I also think is important is that it's not necessarily the, ex, the replacement of red meat. It could be that it's the inclusion of these plant rich foods. So what if you replace something else? What if you replace mm. starchy, uh, starchy vegetables? What if you replace the ultra processed foods that you're consuming? I think you'd see a really strong benefit. And so I'm not really convinced that moderate amounts of unprocessed red meat are, are an increased risk and they have a lot of benefits. So I would sort of say they're, they're around the neutral range to positive if you think about their overall contribution. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting when we look at like type two diabetes is the one that really jumps out at me because we know, you know, I had Dr. Nicola guess on a few years back and, and 90% of diabetes reversal, if we want to call it remission is, is due to weight loss. And how do we support weight loss? Well, we have, you know, less energy dense foods and more nutrient dense foods, and that's a big trigger. And so protein plays a big role. And so that one always seems to, to jump out in a sense of, you know, the, the processed meat intake really being a proxy for a lot of the overconsumption of the ultra processed foods, because obviously we're going to bring on board a lot of energy as that, as that intake goes up and interesting to see in, you know, in your paper, several of the large scale population-based studies. So, you know, leading healthy lifestyles like the Oxford Epic study, and the 45 and up study where, you know, those negative effects of red meat on all cause mortality are being really flushed out. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this has actually been confirmed in a few different uh, recent studies. There's a randomized controlled trial, um, I think on, on, uh, either the Mediterranean diet or paleo diet. And the other, the other study was a cohort study on one of those. I can't, I can't remember which is which, but basically both of those kind of showed, unprocessed red meat to reasonably moderate amounts, even to, by some consideration, high amounts can actually be compatible with, with, um, really, really good heart health and, um, low risk of these chronic diseases. So I think the evidence in general, like you're saying, it's much more that the ultra processed foods, which are a much larger share of our diet in, in, in Western conference and uh, context over, over half of our diet is from these ultra processed foods. And those are, um, in general, this, the studies kind of show when you account for that, if you, if you remove the ultra processed foods, or if you, uh, reduce them and, uh, have a balance, have red meat in the context of a balanced diet, it's usually, um, not associated with increased risk. And so, yeah, I mean, it is fascinating being over here in the UK now, and you talked about how, you know, UK, Canada, the U S over 50% of household spending is ultra processed food. And it's strange when you can get on a train for two hours and be in France and all of a sudden that number drops to 14% or you go to Spain and it's 20% or Italy, 13, 14%. And the thing that jumps out at me in places, especially like France and Italy and Spain is the cardiovascular rates are much lower than in North America. And, you know, recently, obviously the, I think it was the WHO or another organization showing that the longest living folks will be in Spain by 2040. And so <laughs> there's a lot that, that idea that the, the dietary pattern plays a big role in everything seems to be highlighted. And, and when we talk about some of those areas, um, but for now, I'd like to shift over from something that you touched on in your paper on, on pediatric health. So the question around, you know, plant-based animal-based when we talk about kids becomes even more, let's call it compelling because there are some important things to consider um, on the nutrition side, uh, as well as even if we talk sort of policy, but can you share with us, you know, what are some of the, the nutrients here that we need to really be thinking about when it comes to kids' health and, and a 100% plant-based diet? Yeah, so I think you're you're absolutely right that the risk of sort of a 100% plant, plant-based diet or a vegan diet or even a, a diet low in animal source foods is is higher for, for young children, especially uh, young children who are just starting to eat solid foods who have really increased requirements and are actually growing faster than at any other point in life, that six to 23 month period, uh, the brain is rapidly developing. And so there are a lot of essential nutrients that they, they require during that time. And they, and children have small stomachs. They can't, um, they can't really, uh, consume a lot, a large quantity of food. So the foods that they do eat need to be nutrient dense. Um, there's also the sort of factor of, it's not just about the single nutrients, it's the complex food matrix and the cofactors that can really um, improve growth and development. But when we look mm -hmm. at specific nutrients, you know, there's a set of micronutrients, there are 
uh, and then there are sort of like amino essential amino acids and essential fatty acids that can be um, lacking. And this is especially evident when, you know, in the context that I often work are in low and middle income countries in Africa and in um, South Asia. And what we see is that, you know, iron deficiency is very common. The requirements are really high in young children. Uh, zinc deficiency is also common. And then oftentimes things like uh, vitamin B12, uh, calcium, uh, vitamin A can also be lacking as well as folate. And so many of those nutrients are actually in their most dense and bioavailable forms in animal source foods. So you have uh, heme iron in, you know, in red meat you, and, and other uh, animal source foods. You have forms that are, uh, you know, zinc, there's no anti-nutrient like phytate, which is sort of in the plant plant-based um, form and pulses uh, like beans, peas, and lentils. So you may have a similar amount of zinc or iron, but the, the inhibition, you know, it's Portions. not as bioavailable. Yeah. And so we actually noticed that and it's, it's a bit more problematic, especially for, for younger children who, who don't consume enough. Um, and then of course, like uh, protein is one thing and, and there's actually estimated to be about a billion people with that, with not enough protein um, intake in terms of recommended intakes globally. But even those who do have, uh, you know, meet the requirement or the recommended intakes, they often have, especially in young children, low circulating essential amino acids, and that's actually impacting their growth and development. So it's not that just having enough protein is enough. Um, you really need to make sure that the diets, um, you know, have enough of essential amino acids. Um, and the same thing for uh, essential fatty acids, you know, omega-3s uh, in the lung chain form like DHA and EPA, much more bioavailable in plant, um, plant source forms are usually converted at about 10 to 1 or less than that. Um, and so all of these nutrients kind of act together and it's, it's hard to say which is most important. But what we do know is that um, having a diet that's low in animal source foods for, for a young child and even adolescents as they're growing and developing is, is typically not optimal. Now, if you have access to a really diversity of a uh, really diverse range of healthy plant foods and things like dark green leafy vegetables and you're consuming lots of them, um, pulses like lentils and, and whatnot, and, and you have access to fortified foods and supplements, you, you can be okay. But it's something that, you know, it's not necessarily given enough attention. Yeah, it's definitely one of those ones where in the Western, if we're in a middle upper class, you know, demographics, there's kind of more bandwidth, there's more room for error, let's call it when we have exposure to these foods that we can get, which you talk about the diverse foods, we've got support from doctors, dietitians. But when we get to lower middle income, even in Western countries, and of course, in other countries, then th that room for error gets really slim, doesn't it? We're much more prone to sort of deficiency. And you, you cite in your paper how a lot of professional organizations like the Belgian Royal Academy of Medicine, or the Swiss Federal Commission for Nutrition, actually discourage veganism or vegetarianism in, in very young populations. And that even the Italian pediatric organization stated that vegan and vegetarian diets are inadequate for a lot of the, you know, the neuropsychomotor development. And so I'm sure some people listening in are saying, geez, he's really anti 100% plant-based diet. And I think it's obviously as you're presenting, this is, these are just an area that we really need to be focused and concerned on because the, the repercussions later on are, are really significant here, right? Absolutely. And I would probably just, just to make sure that I don't get hit from the, um, the plant-based community that I have been, it's been pointed out to me on social media that there are many, uh, national organizations that actually do support a vegan diet, a well, a well-planned vegan diet. So yeah. it's mixed and you know, some, I don't know what the total number is, but I think the point is that there is a, there, there is an increased risk of inadequate nutrient intake. I mean, it's just, that's just the case. When you restrict a very nutrient dense food source from the diet, it's going to be an increased risk. I think, um, more power to people who, who can and want to do that in a, in a way that's healthy. But I think when you're, when we're talking about kids who don't have control of their diet, I think we, we have a responsibility to make sure they're getting the nutrients they need, because as you said, you can have lifelong consequences if you, if you, um, this is more, more the case in low and middle income countries. If you have stunted growth, uh, if you don't develop during these key stages, but certainly you're not going to have optimal health if you, if you don't pay attention to the nutrients that you need to consume. And so pay attention to, to things like uh, iron. If you're going without animal source foods, um, check it, iron levels for children, for kids, adolescents, check um, zinc, making sure B12 is there. Um, I think those, those nutrients and then DHA and EPA as well. 
Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. A quick note, if you're struggling with muscle aches, stiff and painful joints, then it's really time to start doing something about it. Check out our free five-day mobility course, where you'll learn five simple exercises to improve mobility and reduce pain so you can get back to doing the things that you enjoy. Head over to drbubs.com forward slash peak 40 mobility. That's drbubs.com forward slash peak 40 mobility to get access to the free five-day mobility course and start feeling better in just a couple minutes a day. All right, let's get back to our conversation. I mean, it's a theme that you talk about throughout the paper, this idea of sort of context and where are we in the world and what's the culture, because this is going to really influence the, you know, the strategy that we're using. And when four out of eight food groups contributing to the World Health Organization's minimum dietary diversity score are coming from animals, then this is something that needs to be taken into consideration. It's, you know, you share a great graphic in the paper around, you know, the quantity of food from organ meats like liver compared to some of the plant-based alternatives. And again, it's not to pit one versus the other, but it's to say that these can provide a pretty valuable source, particularly in these lower to middle income countries. Because what was it about, you know, the portion of animal of organ meat would be a hundred times the portion of a pulse to achieve the similar amounts of things like iron, zinc, vitamin A, B12. You know, that's, that's pretty profound when we're talking about, you know, malnutrition around the world being quite prevalent, some 750 million to 800 million children, more or less. Is that right? Yeah, I think um, if you, when you when you look at the numbers for undernutrition, uh, you know, 150 million children under five are stunted. So that's sort of they they're not growing at the rate that they need to grow. Um, 570 million women, 15 to 49, have anemia. Um, and then we're we're doing a study on deficiencies, and over a billion people have deficiencies, and it's it's probably larger than that. So it is important. And I think in the paper, you know, we we have this this analysis where we look at, you know, what you're talking about. Here's some here's a range of foods that are from animal source foods and plant source foods. And these are sort of nutrients that are commonly lacking. Now, there are a lot of nutrients that are not listed there that can be yeah. problematic. Like in high income countries, you generally see, um, you know, magnesium, potassium, vitamin E, those can be problematic as well. But the, the point here is that we have the most evidence on these nutrients globally, and they're actually causing more severe uh, impacts to health. And so when you look at those nutrients, you're absolutely right. There's um, orders of magnitude different levels of nutrient density of these key nutrients when you take into account bioavailability. So things like liver, small fish, um, eggs, ruminant meat, those are, you can have really a lot smaller quantities to get the same nutrient value of these key nutrients. And so I think people don't really uh, realize that. And there's sort of a, um, a misconception that nutrient requirements are the same regardless of what your diet is. That's really not the case. If you actually, if you have, um, for example, if you have a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet, the requirements for iron and zinc are actually much higher than they are if you have an omnivorous diet. And so you can't just consume, you can't have the same targets. They're actually um, higher targets. And that's, that's the case in, you know, in the US and the RDA. Um, there's, there's that recommendation in there, and that's kind of worldwide. Yeah, and a big one. I mean, you talked about iron. I mean, I think it's about 1.7 times the RDA if it's purely from plant-based. So it just adds a layer of challenge and again not that it can't be done and we see it done successfully in the west but these are you know i like the the theme in the paper of just saying well depending on where we are in the world we can't have a blanket approach of, of trying to shift all of the food system in one direction because we're going to leave a heck of a lot of people potentially very exposed and shifting gears a little bit that brings us to the concept of hey we're using technology we're going to be able to we can already grow meat in the lab can we use this to replace the meat that we're consuming, obviously we're replicating the macronutrients and the key vitamins and minerals, but can this actually really replace, uh, you know, animal source foods? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question that I'm not going to answer directly, but I will say no I'm looking, I'm, I'm going to be looking into this more. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to work on working on a paper now that's kind of reviewing the the nutrition environmental um, impacts of, of animal source foods. And I want to do a, a, you know, a sort of deep dive into the, these alternative options. I think one thing we know for sure, and this is from uh, a colleague of mine, Stefan Van Fleet, is, who looked at sort of the plant-based meat alternatives, that they can have the same 
they can have the same nutrition facts panel. So like you said, macronutrients are matched. They can even have to some, some, in some cases of some of the micronutrients can be similar, mm-hmm. but uh, when you look at them from a metabolomics perspective, you look at the actual complexity of the compounds in those foods, which there are many thousands they're actually mostly different. So there's over 90% difference. Now, there's no, there really is not a lot of evidence to say which is healthier or what are the health risks or benefits, but there is at least this point that they're not the same. And I think it's an area where we need to look into it um, further. The other thing, you know, the food matrix is is a big factor in terms of risk of non-communicable disease and, and uh, nutrient absorption. And if you have a, a food that has its matrix preserved, there's sort of a a slower breakdown of those um, components. And what we actually see when you talk about ultra processed foods that have been highly processed, the food matrix is is destroyed or altered significantly. And I think that can lead to hyper palatability, have increased consumption where our, our appetite or our satiety regulation mechanisms are not functioning properly. They don't know what to do with that. And so I think that's an important piece. But there are a lot of um, potential, like you said, lab-based or cell-based meat, uh, potential options, microproteins, um, precision fermentation, dairy. I mean, these are yeah. things I, I don't know a lot about, but that I am that are on my radar. And I think, I think uh, if you look practically, they're probably going to play a larger role going forward and, and an increasingly larger role to replace some animal source foods. But I think what we need to, to um, just be careful of is to just be evidence-based, Let's look at the try to look holistically at the implications of this. What are the um, what are the resource implications? The use of um, you know fossil fuels or, or energy, um, and then just let's make decisions that are based on that. I think ultimately there are still a lot of reasons. If you think if we think about this sort of push to uh, reduce you know heavily restrict or eliminate animal source foods. There are a lot of there's gastronomic legacy with uh, certain animal source foods that have been been around for a long time. There there are rich like cultural traditions that are uh, you know animal source foods are a key part of. So I think, uh, in addition to the many other factors, livelihoods, um, e- ecosystem function, thinking about regenerative type production, there's a lot of reasons uh, I think to include livestock in uh, food production. Yeah, it is a fascinating area. And, and we had Stefan on last year in the podcast. And yeah, just all these various compounds. I mean, it blows your mind to think 10,000, 20,000, 30,000. Um, and of course, these other nutrients, uh, you know, the, the carnosines, the anserines, the taurines, all these types of things that we just, it's difficult to mimic. What I'd like to do now is shift on the animal based, animal source foods, how they impact the planet. And I think whether you're on one end of the spectrum and you're sort of paleo or carnivore and you're the other end of the spectrum plant-based it in, interesting to me is that both of those groups can really agree that factory farming isn't something that is desirable right for the animal for the planet um you know maybe that's where the fake meats help out in terms of some of the fast food but um you know if we look at the adverse impacts of industrialization of farming which really seems to be where a lot of things pivoted with a lot of the adverse impacts on on animal welfare and the planet. And of course we need to feed a lot of people on the planet. This is obviously a broad area. What about if we start with the claims about water with, with animals, you know, it's often stated that about one kilogram of beef consumes over 15,000 liters of water. You know, is that accurate? Are there some nuances there that we should be taking into consideration? Yeah. So that, that's a, that's a great point that the water use really depends on the type of water and what is is pretty clear is that in a um, natural environment of a rangeland or grassland, there's a certain amount of rainfall that that comes naturally on that ground. And if you include that water, which is often included in these assessments of water use, that water is going to be there regardless of if you have cattle on the land or it's going to rain. It's going to rain. Doesn't matter what's on that land, right? (laughs) It's going to rain. Yeah. And in fact, when you, when you look at the difference in water retention from a farm, like a monoculture, where it's tilled regularly versus some sort of regenerative, diverse production where you have cattle grazing on that land. We have sometimes upwards of 100 species of grasses, forbs, legumes. You can actually increase the water absorption capacity of that soil 
Uh, so you're actually storing more of the water and then the cattle are, are consuming it. So in general, the I think the claims are pretty are overstated on the water side. When you look at the actual type of water that's going to be used, really what we would should be looking at is what what water are we taking from sources that would otherwise need to be used for drinking water? So uh, groundwater, et cetera, that um, it's the rainwater in the context of a, a pastured system is not going to be something that that's going to be a negative impact because that's part of the natural ecosystem. So I think that's uh, key. And, and you, you bring up the good point about water, you know, other plant-based foods can take a lot of water. You think about nuts, most of the nut production, almonds, et cetera, come from California where there actually is a lot of water scarcity. And so just going plant-based for, for, for say a metric like water use would, would not be um, particularly smart because a lot of crops take a lot of water to produce. Yeah, I think that region in California where they have the majority of the almond farms is actually the most impacted from, from that to lack of water. So that is interesting that there's layers to this. And, you know, the next argument that we often hear is that animal feed competes with the crops that would otherwise be, you know, suitable for a human diet. And so we're feeding about six to 20 kilograms of grain to produce a kilogram of meat. You know, again, you know, is that accurate or what are some of the nuances there? I think it's, um, there's some accurate, there's probably a case for, for making that claim, but it's, uh, it's a bit more nuanced than that. So first for starters, people are not going to consume, uh, you don't just consume one food like a, like a, a grain, for example. And so if you're, if you're looking at just, uh, you know, how much, if you just replace meat with, with, with a grain, you're not just going to consume that. You need to consume a diet that's balanced and meets your nutrition mm -hmm. requirements. The land use, the land use, uh, certainly, um, if you're growing, uh, crops for livestock feed directly, that, is not an efficient use of land because you can, in general, if you if you if you're giving feeding the crops that would otherwise go to humans, you you would of course you would need uh, more land to be able to produce that. You would need more ultimate food. But what people don't perhaps recognize is that most of the diet, especially for ruminants, most of the diet, um, their diet is comes from inedible foods. So this is Stuff the um, not just the. Yeah, this is the residues, the crop residues. So after a harvest of, of soybeans or corn, uh, the, the cattle can graze and eat the leftovers that that we can't eat. They eat most of their diet. Um, if you look at ruminants, it's actually grasses and, and other foods that we can't eat. So this is roaming around on uh, natural uh, grasslands that oftentimes aren't suitable for crop production anyways. A lot of the Earth's surface is covered in rangelands. There's a lot of reasons why that can't be produced. The, the soil isn't fertile enough. Maybe it's too steep or too mm -hmm. rocky, but, but livestock can actually graze that land. So when you look at it from the, the, the human food feed competition, I think there is a lot of um, livestock that could be produced in much more sustainable ways. And I think like you're saying, the factory farming where you sort of have a monoculture that's producing the feed and then you're feeding that to livestock is not an efficient process. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of harmful consequences to that. But what, what it, what it doesn't mean is that we, we can't produce livestock in sustainable ways. I think there's, uh, certainly ways to produce it, integrating livestock into these um, regenerative type production, having circular approaches. Yeah, I mean, a few things that jumped out for me from your paper was, you know, only 5% of the global feed intake consists of grains and soybean meal that would be in direct competition for the human diet. Uh, so that's, you know, not, not a lot, obviously. And the, the fact that ruminants need less protein from human edible feed, of what is it, like 0.6 kilograms than what they deliver as one kilogram of that high quality protein is, is a pretty important metric, isn't it? When we're talking about how do we provide nutrient dense, lower energy foods to the population whilst contributing to, uh, you know, this, this healthy ecosystem, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. Like when you could think about the actual amount of food, uh, competing for human resources for ruminants, it's, about 5%, uh, even potentially less than that. And so most of their diet is largely inedible and they're really efficient. Um, they're, they can, they're ruminants for a reason, right? They can ferment that uh, material into really nutrient dense food. Yeah. Being able to take advantage of that upcycling seems, seems like a benefit that hopefully we can, we should still be able to harness. And you know, what about the flip side when we think about just monocrops in general, I mean, if we're growing large single, um, 
crops of, of vegetables. What are the potential pitfalls there for diversity? Because sometimes we just default to this heuristic of if we just have plants, well, then we're just going to have more you know, diversity as a result of that. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that all food production has an impact on the environment and there are better and worse ways to produce food. So if, you're, if, if our replacement of uh, you know, animal source foods comes from an uh, industrial intensive monoculture, that may be efficient and in the short term, you know, in providing a lot of uh, fossil fuel derived inputs can create high yields and on a low amount of land. But of course, there's uh, nutrient pollution, there's runoff into waterways. There's a there's a destruction of the ecosystem of that land where the crops are produced. So there's no there's not much um, life on that land. A lot of uh, animals can be actually harmed in that process through pesticides, through tilling, et cetera. The soil health diversity is really low. So that's a, that's sort of a case for industrial type farming oftentimes can be problematic, whether it's for crops or uh, for livestock. Uh, but that doesn't also, of course, it doesn't mean that there aren't sustainable ways to produce plant source foods and crops. And there certainly are. Yeah. And I think there is, you know, when you look at diverse, uh, you know, agroecosystems that combine a lot of different species of, of uh, crops and uh, they can have the biodiversity increased on the land itself. They can actually be a, a place for birds to come. You can integrate into livestock systems, um, fruit trees. You can have these what are kind of called agroforestry. So there are these potential pathways to do this. Um, I think you, it doesn't mean that we, everybody needs to eat animal source foods, but what it means is that there are actually sustainable ways to produce at least a moderate amount of animal source foods. Now, I think the big debate probably comes over how much can we sustainably produce and where and which types of food and what production methods, because there, there is a concern, you know, animal source foods can take a lot of land. They can be problematic if they're not done properly and in balance. And that's sort of where I think the, the future direction of research should go is to try to quantify in different contexts, really, the local context should be key. That's cultural, that's eco ecological context, what types of foods can be produced and in what ways. Yeah, it does become frustrating when we think about just the food waste, especially when it comes to the amount of inputs required to produce animal foods. And then as we're talking about, there's just, there is a cost to that. And then the food waste being so astronomically high around the world that even just, I don't know if it was Nigel Bloom or someone, another DACA researcher talking about how we could, just that alone would, would really move the needle uh, quite a bit. If we talk about the last, uh, well, oh, there's there's many more, but if we talk about a third component here around the environment, which is greenhouse gas emissions, that's another one that often gets cited by various on social media and media at different outlets. You know, how much does our diet contribute to global to greenhouse gas emissions as compared to you know housing, transportation, the stuff that we buy, the technology in our pockets. Um, and even within diet, how does that sort of break down? Could you walk us through what, what you guys uh, outline in the paper? Yeah, so I think in the paper, we're, we're cautious to, to not say that greenhouse gas emissions from food production don't matter, because um, sure. they do. Um, and there is an impact, of course, and, and ruminants belch methane and that contributes to our sort of what we consider anthropogenic emissions, the human human caused emissions. Um, there's a few points that we make. One is that uh, if you have a natural ecosystem with that's functioning properly, and you know every every ecosystem includes plants and animals and, and whatnot. So if you have a rangeland where you would often where where there are typically grasslands of cattle grazing, there are going to be wild ruminants on that land. There are going to be deer, um, you know, historic, pre prehistorically, there were larger uh, megafauna and uh, things like termites actually generate a lot of methane. So there, there are, there is some base level of methane when we, when you think about just natural, you know, grasslands or, or ecosystems that would function. So we want to look ho more holistically at that methane. And when there, it was not a problem, um, because of the cycle of methane. So if, if animals are living in a natural ecosystem, there's a, you know, methane is a short-lived greenhouse gas. So as opposed to CO2, which is, can take over a hundred years to be, um, you know, removed from the atmosphere. Methane lasts, I think probably around closer to 10 years. And it's, it has a high warming potential, which is, which is problematic, which means it's actually contributing to a lot of uh, warming, but it also has a natural process of removal. So that goes, it, it gets, um, there's a, there's a methane cycle and it's, 
uh, it doesn't contribute to increased warming if you have a, a base level of, of, of livestock or ruminants. But certainly there are ways to mitigate. Um, I think one of the metrics that, that, you, that we often see, though, is that the greenhouse gas emissions are not always considering the, um, the life cycle, the, the, how long the, the greenhouse gas is, is staying in the atmosphere. And so ruminants will get a bad rap because methane is this really warming gas and like it's look how much they're belching this is problematic but it depends on how you sort of look at the system the overall system there are also a lot of diff innovative ways to reduce these emissions in ruminants so feeding um, certain types of seaweed other additives that can actually reduce quite a bit um, and i think that's an important consideration so you know in general my perspective um, is that we we need to look at the emissions and we need to try to moderate. I don't think we can have as much meat as we want as some people can can argue from yeah, some circles. Sure. But the I I don't think the answer means that there's uh, we can have zero. You know, other forms of crop production like rice production can produce actually quite a bit of methane too. So I think it's just important to consider how we produce food. I think one of the one of the points that I would like to make that I think maybe the those of us who are sort of advocates of having a moderate amount of animal source foods don't always acknowledge is that the quickest way to reduce uh, you know global warming can also be to reduce the methane in the atmosphere, mm -hmm. even if it's a part of a natural cycle. One of the quickest levers we have is to reduce that. So I think it is a it is a worthwhile consideration to figure out how to get that as low as possible while also considering environmental impact more holistically because ruminants are much more than the greenhouse gas emissions they emit they can increase biodiversity on land they can actually be used to conserve uh rangelands in the u.s the world wildlife fund actually has some programs to help um, work with ranchers to conserve lands and, and make sure that they're they're producing their uh, livestock in a way that is beneficial to the environment yeah i mean it's interesting when we look at you know just the ground being a, a a big carbon sink and its ability to soak up and sequester. And, and so when we talk about things, if we get to the animal side now, sort of the effect of, of animal source foods on the actual animal welfare, you know, regenerative farming techniques seem to be a system where the animal does have a better life, much more so than factory farming, I'm sure all can agree. Um, and it seems like there is potential in terms of the impact on, you know, whether it's biodiversity, things like topsoil, now, I know people in the plant-based community would argue that a lot of those things get over-exaggerated in terms of the, its potential. You know, uh, as, as you mentioned, we're probably gonna have to eat less meat. The question is, you know, some groups wanna eliminate altogether versus others advocating for the fact that it can be part of a, um, part of the, you know, the, the food system and, and ecosystem. So, you know, from what you've looked at in, in the paper and, and from your point of view, in terms of regenerative farming techniques, things like that, is that going to be potentially playing a key role in this whole story? Yeah, I'm actually really pleased to see some unity in this. I think this is probably a more recent um, consensus that most researchers, even those who are very kind of on the side of heavy reduction of livestock, they're really proponents of regenerative agriculture or, you know, different words of this are nature positive production or whatnot, agroecology, yeah. different forms of production that can actually have some benefits um, to the environment. And so I think that's that. And as you mentioned earlier, food waste are sort of some of the less, um, those are those are areas that a lot of scientists can agree upon because the, these are sort of, um, they're ways to, uh, regardless of what foods are being produced, they're ways to, to reduce the environmental impact. The regenerative production, there, there's a, a few points on this. So one is that it, if you can produce a lot of different types of products and foods, you can actually have a pretty productive, um, both for the farmer, so the farmer can make um, good money on their um, mm -hmm. land and also produce things in a sustainable way. So as opposed to just growing one crop, you have different crops, you have livestock, you can produce honey, you can produce products from the livestock, really trying to make use of a lot of different things. And so the overall productivity of the land can be very high, even if the yield of one particular item is not any higher than in a conventional yeah. system. I mean, if effectively, that sort of leads in, you know, as we sort of get towards the tail end here, I'm always thinking about, you know, what, what are elements that the two groups on the opposing sides of the spectrum can start to agree on? You've touched on a few already in terms of um, regenerative agriculture and reducing food waste, you know, where do you see this conversation going of 
rather than this polarization, finding these, these, this common ground in the middle that we can actually start um, enacting some strategies and some policies to start making a difference. Yeah, I think that's, that's the right question because polarization is not constructive. I think it's, there's a lot of just negative feedback loops. There's a lot of, I think, unproductive uh, sort of argumentative type approaches or not approaches, but uh, interactions. And so one thing that everybody should be able to agree on is that we want people to have healthy diets to be able to live, meet, meet, reach their full potential to be free of disease, right? And there are different perspectives on how to best do that. But if you look at just from the health side, we can agree most people are working on this and let's give people the benefit of the doubt. If you're, if you're much more plant-based, if you're less plant-based, people care about um, diets, especially if you're working in this area, we want people to be healthy. And so I think that is going to give people, I think, a sense of, look, we're all we're all humans, especially if we work in this field, we're working towards uh, improving lives of people. So let's let's work towards uh, uh, commonalities there. Now, when you get into the question of how to do it, that's the that's sort of a lot of the debate. And same thing for the environment. You know, I, I know very personally, like I care a lot about the environment. My co-authors on this paper care a lot about the environment. Um, but we don't think that a heavy restriction or elimination of animal source foods is necessarily the best way to go about our approaching our food system. So maybe we can reach commonalities of how do we uh, produce food in a more uh, environmentally beneficial way? How can we how can we start shifting away from the really destructive practices? So how can we one how can we shift away from the ultra processed foods that are causing a lot of health health issues? And how can we um, shift away from farming practices uh, that are harming animals that are really inhumane? I think we can make a lot of uh, progress towards that. Of course, people people who don't believe that consuming animal source foods is ethical in any way, there's no there's no com- you can't really reach common ground there because there's there's no ethical argument that you can make that that is going to convince people um, of that perspective that it's okay to eat animal source foods. But what you can probably agree upon is that there are there are better and worse ways to treat animals and so you know if you're if you're more if you're a more practical um person on that side of the you know practical vegan you could say okay well let's let's at least agree like let's let's cut out some of these really harmful practices that you know chickens in in cages crammed together let's treat animals the, the best we can and let's use our um let's i think we need to to work towards productive uh, agricultural systems that are also uh, facilitate biodiversity and are health, healthy to the ecosystem. So rather than there's sort of two approaches, there's kind of this, let's call it, there's a land sharing or a land sparing debate. Like let's produce all the food in really efficient, intensive ways so that we can use as little land as possible. But the land that you do use is really um, kind of destroyed and it's not a sustainable for that land. Right. And then there's, there's other, consequences of pollution and whatnot or can we you know trying to really just favor how can we be as have as minimal impact on the environment as possible but we can't produce a lot of food i think you can kind of merge those to some extent to say and that's what i think regenerative agriculture can do say let's produce things in in ways that are actually producing a lot of overall food nutritious diverse foods uh, but also using land efficiently not trying to um you know, because we have to, and, and really, I think favoring the local ecosystem and context, because there's no benefit to clearing rainforest for crop production or crop production for livestock feed. There's, you know, we have to work towards um, halting any of those types of practices. Yeah, I love that, you know, concept and philosophy of when we're working with patients, clients, we want our clients to be healthy. I don't care what dietary strategy you use, really, I want the end point to be health and happiness and the same for, for the planet, right? We want to have a healthy planet. And so starting from a place of agreement, I guess is what I'm saying is always a great place to even amongst polarized groups. Cause like you're saying, then we can at least agree on the outcome. And then the debate comes with, with what strategies we want to implement. And it's with complex problems, it is important to have a diverse array of inputs and, and strategies rather than putting all of our eggs into one basket, so to speak, in terms of a certain strategy, now, I want to respect your time here, Ty, but, you know, at an individual level, what could someone who is, you know, consumes animal-based foods, 
but wants to make an impact in their own lives, you know, from, from your research or from your own insights, where's a place for people to start? Yeah, I think that's, um, depends on where you're living. Of course, if you have, um, if you have the means to, um, purchase from local type of, uh, farms or livestock production systems that are regenerative and that are having either minimal impact on the environment or, or positive impact, that's one way to do it, right? Vote with your, your yeah. purchase. Um, I think that's, that's the case for animal welfare, right? If you, if you go to Whole Foods and you have the funds to pay for that, you can support, um, you know, you can buy animal source foods from producers that have some certifications on their, their treatment of, of animals. So I think that's a place to start when you're in the West. You can also reduce um, intake of animal source foods. So um, especially if you're if you're eating a diverse diet and you're paying attention to your, your key nutrients, um, you, some of the things that um, I think are are really good options are soy milk. You know, eating soy milk in the U.S. it's just it's about 12 grams of protein per eight ounces, and it's just soybeans and water. That's a pretty good option right there. Um, a lot of these innovative products. I mean, tofu's been around a long time. That's great, but some of these innovative products like uh, lentil pasta for example, I think is a really good option because it's high in protein. It's, it's, if you're replacing normal pasta, for example, um, you could, you're going to get much more protein. You could either reduce the amount of meat you have with that pasta, or you could just have the pasta by itself with lentils. And if you, you consume that, um, you're also getting a lot of fiber and other benefits. Um, and what I think some people may, may not realize is that, there, some people have a problem with pulses, uh, consuming a lot of them, right? Adjusting, I mean, yeah. bloating, gas, um, and it, it, there's generally probably an adjustment process. So if you if you're if you don't consume a lot of pulses and you suddenly just have like a giant bowl of lentils, gonna, yeah, good luck, it's gonna right? Be tough for a minute. <laughs> it's gonna be tough, but there are a lot of um, processing techniques to reduce that impact. So one of them, uh, if you just you know the lentil pasta, for example. It's actually uh, a much much easier to absorb um, that and and have um, not have digestive issues. There are um, products out there where the beans have been soaked mm. or um, you know eaten again. They do these. They have black beans, for example. They've been soaked in a, in a way that kind of reduces Some of the raffinose that. and um, but, carbohydrates that cause a lot of those concerns. Yeah, and you can rinse. You know, you can take a can of beans and you can rinse them pretty thoroughly with water to reduce a lot of that impact. Yep. So. There are a lot of foods. I think I'm. I, I want to just be clear. I, I I I'm actually an advocate for for having a moderate amount of animal source foods in the food system. But there's a large variety of people and preferences that can fit within that. Sure. So there can be people who are entirely plant based who just consume plant products, and there can be people who have moderate amounts and people who have more amounts if they have that kind of need for whatever reason. But ultimately, what we're looking at is to make sure that our overall consumption fits within planetary boundaries that it's supportive of ecosystems. And we all have some, um, some potential to make an impact, but a lot of people, um, you know, some of these products, especially on the animal source foods, if they're humanely raised, if they're produced in regenerative practices, they're often more expensive. And there's just a reality that people, um, can't always afford that. So I'd like to see at a systematic or a more like a high level, um, transformation to say like let's produce let's have the baseline of foods produced including animal source foods really produced in ways that are uh, less destructive to the environment that have higher welfare standards for animals etc yeah great great suggestions and you know to wrap things up ty you touched a little bit on this but again the evolution of research in this area where do you see things in the next sort of five or ten years yeah, so I think there's a lot of research um, in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, re reducing methane in the feed and different um, approaches there. Of course, these alternative proteins, these alternative foods like uh, cell-based meat, microproteins, precision fermentation, I think that's going to be that's going to be a, a really key area of research going forward. Um, I think there's room for a lot of these approaches, and ultimately, we should incentivize any type of approach that is really trying to prioritize producing nutritious foods that are, you know, respectful of animals, um, at least to the extent possible, and that also facilitate healthy environments and are produced in ways that are beneficial. So that's my hope going forward. Tremendous. Well, I mean, the paper was a tremendous read, and we'll put that up in the in the show notes for folks. 
you know, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with uh, your research? Yeah, so I'm uh, probably most active on Twitter. That's uh, Ty R. Beal, or T-Y-R-B-E-A-L. And I'll post uh, current studies, recent studies that I've worked on or just that I find interesting. So feel free to um, keep keep um, in touch there. And I'll also be happy to, to respond to any uh, questions or qu- qu- queries that people may have. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, I appreciate the time and always good to keep up with what you're doing. Really insightful and it's obviously a very big question, but one that's impacting all of us, whether it's the health front, uh, the environment. So uh, yeah, thanks again for the time. Thanks for having me, Mark. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. To watch the full video interview and short clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff is a massive help to the show. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.